Welcome to Meanwhile at the Museum, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes with the people, stories, and shenanigans that make Cincinnati Museum Center what it is. I'm Cody Hefner, and I'm joined today by Matt Mananen, who is our registrar. Welcome, Matt. Thank you. Thank you. I know you are a registrar. I have a gist of what that means, but as I was thinking about this, if I were put on the spot, would I actually be able to explain what a registrar does and not be embarrassed by my answer? So... I'm going to kick it to the expert. What does a museum registrar do? Wow. Well, that's a great question. Sometimes I ask myself that. <laughs> um, a little of everything. I'm a, a specialist in generalities or something like that. I look after the collection. I assess risks to the collection. Do lots of paperwork, as you might expect. Someone, when you hear like registrar, they often think of like the license bureau or yeah. someone at the university who certifies your report cards or something like that. But it is a little bit of legal and paperwork, um, insurance. I handle loan paperwork, new acquisitions, get everything sort of officially in the, the database when we have new things in the collection. But then there's so much other stuff that I do from a, on a day-to-day basis. It's so interesting to hear that because I see a snapshot of these. Because if, if you were to ask me what you do, mm-hmm. I'd say, well, here's what I've seen Matt do. Uh-huh. Walking it, around a lot, probably. Walking around <laughs> a lot. But you're, anytime there's an exhibit install, mm-hmm. Matt's there in the thick mm-hmm. of it. Some people may think, okay, he, he knows everything about the collections. Like he's, he's the one to talk to if mm-hmm. you have any question about what's this object, what's it mean, where's it come from. But do you know that or is... Your specialty is more in how to manage those, how to kind of track and care and and account for those more than to know the individual objects themselves. I would say definitely more of the latter. Um, You know, I'm interested and curious, like most people here, um, about anything that we have in the collections. But certainly the curators, they should be the experts. And I go to them as far as getting the background. But, you know, I have the paperwork. I can look into these things and who gave them to us or whatever. But off the top of my head, I couldn't say, you know, that that gallium opus came from so-and-so county in Utah or something like that. I wouldn't know that. But uh, but you know where to find that information. Exactly. You are the You're the, the keeper of that information. In right. Right. And in many places, some other museums, uh, my role is called a records manager. Um, sometimes it's collection manager. Um, over at the Geyer Collection Center, where we have most of our collections, in addition to our curators, we have at least two collections managers. So we have a paleontology collection manager and a zoology collection manager. And so they do a lot of the tracking internally in their storage, or they get information when a loan needs to go out. They'll like pack things and ship things out, but then I will do the paperwork for that you know, for them. So, and when we have a, uh, traveling exhibition that, that comes in, mm-hmm. you're involved in that as well, because I mm-hmm. see you peering into crates and, and looking over objects. What are you, sure. what are you looking for? Sure. What are you doing? Uh, generally with ex- exhibitions and installs, um, I'm just trying to make sure that things are handled carefully and properly or stored out of harm's way. Um, cause as you know, when exhibits happen, it's like, um, a bunch of bowls in a china shop. However, they're very careful bowls, and we try to really tiptoe. But it's amazing things don't get broken. But, you know, I have complete trust because I I am of the exhibits type of person. That's where my heart is, I suppose, in exhibits. So well, that's... To, to that <clears throat> point, what's mm-hmm. what's a registrar's backstory? What's your backstory? How do you, how do you get to this point? Because mm-hmm. when did you join Cincinnati Museum Center? I started here... Um, October 2nd, 2017, so a little more than six years, and my first day was doing the deinstall for the Star Wars costume exhibit. That was your first day? Yep, yep, thrown right in. So uh, I tried to put it off a little bit, but they they said, no, we need you here on October 2nd, so that's what I did. Fair enough. So what's the backstory? (laughs) What, What gets you up to that point? Okay. Well, I'd say it's very roundabout way, like many people here at the museum, how they end up doing what they're doing. It's it's kind of interesting. It's a very interesting island of misfit toys that it, a lot of people fall right where they're supposed to be. Other people, right. you know, they're, they're on a straight path, but a lot of people mm-hmm. zig and zag and get into a role 
And then you talk to him and you say, how did you ever do anything besides this? Yeah. You're so suited for this. Right, right. It's it's a lot of zigs and a lot of zags, I, I will say. Um, let's see. I, I was always interested in history and museums. Um, I was really blessed... I went to Sycamore High School, and the year, I think it was sixth grade, was the year of the Bicentennial. And we had field trips almost every week to various historic sites and museums and things around the city. So that was just, I I just felt so lucky to be able to do that. Um, So I learned a lot about the city, and I was just super interested in history, but also in art. So I was an art history major. At UC, at DAP. Combined them. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, kind of a minor in European history. And I was I was interested in medieval Renaissance studies, things like that. And went to graduate school for a little bit at the University of Virginia in art history. But I felt like I just couldn't really narrow my focus down on what I wanted to teach and do research and write about for several years. And I also missed being in a rock band. That was that was part of the zigging and the zagging, because all through college and after college, I played in a band fairly regularly, and that was my, my outlet. I'm and, so excited right yeah, now. Yeah. I can't wait to come back to that. All right. So, so yeah. we, I think gonna, of band names, too, just like Whitney, so I, I've got... <laughs> I don't, we're yeah. we're going to zig back yeah. to that. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah. So, moving on, I guess I, I came back to Cincinnati working a number of temp jobs, some really boring, some really interesting. You know, that's kind of the fun about doing temp jobs and you're in your 20s. You don't know what you're doing. You know, you're just happy to make rent and have fun with your friends or whatever. I'll get asked every now and then mm-hmm. uh, by former professors I've had, hey, do you want to talk to this history class? And I don't know if I disappoint them when, when I speak. <laughs> some, some of the professors who ask me, I'm like, um, this question is very inconsistent with how... Right. How you viewed me in your class. Right. But, you know, I'm very realistic. Listen, you have to pay bills. You mm-hmm. have to pay rent. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes that is not your passion job. Right. You got to pay the bills while you're tracking that down. And I think a lot of people, you know, have to say, you just always follow your passion, always track your passion. And that's great, but sometimes it's not always practical. Right. And so those temp jobs in your 20s, like you're, you're character building, but you're yeah. also, yeah, you're, yeah. you're staying <laughs> Yeah. Out of collections. Right, right. The other collections, not yeah, museum yeah, yeah, collections. No, right, right. Yeah, so you just, but you know, you, you meet a lot of interesting people and sometimes you really luck into an interesting job. And so, let's see, when was that? Probably around 1991 or something, I got a temp job at this uh, gallery frame shop down on 4th Street called the Wynn Art Group. Um, I think they were based out of Seattle, but they, they had sort of like a lot of limited edition prints. They did a lot of decor type art for like businesses and offices around town and residential. And I ended up sort of being the um, delivery person and installer for a lot of that stuff. And I worked with a bunch of art consultants. So, you know, we would go around the whole region, Columbus, Dayton, Louisville, all that. The business ended up closing. They closed that store and these ladies that I worked with were all planning on continuing doing their art consultancy. And they said, you ought to just, you know, get yourself a van and some tools and we've got plenty of work for you. So I went ahead and did that. And I did deliveries and installs for frame shops around other frame shops around town and all that. So that was kind of interesting, good experience and just learning how to not beat up people's houses and, you know, hang, hang art. And, you know, sometimes you're hanging like 60 of these portraits of our best salesman of the year and, you know, stuff like that. But also, I have a lot of anything. I have a lot of respect for it. I have very hard time hanging things because, you know, plaster wall, drywall, people will laugh and then they can shame me, whatever. But it's, I'm like, what's the trick? How do I not just gouge my wall, just, yeah. you know, slamming holes in the wall? So that's a skill in itself. I mean, I, I've caused like one minor power outage at a dentist office once. Um, <laughs> Another horrible experience was always homeramas because when you go to these things, you know, you're putting up art kind of like the last thing. And those those neighborhoods are like these chaotic things. People are laying down sod and you've got landscapers and you've got designers coming and going. And I'm hanging these huge paintings to block wall space, I suppose, up above these stairwells and everything. So that was a little challenging. Are, are you on ladders? Are you <laughs> level eyeball 
eyeball alone, like you can eyeball it. And oh. like, that's level. Got it. Somewhat, somewhat, but yeah, it's you got to have the tools though too. These so, are yeah. I, these are going to be great when we when we put on a. A museum talent show. <laughs> why? Watch me hang this. Yeah, we, yeah, we'll just put up a bunch of different wall types and just let you let you razzle dazzle. I think we should have like an exhibit or preparators Olympics, you know, or something like that. So, I I think it would be yeah. fascinating for other people to to see and to understand. Yeah, yeah, it's a good skill to have. Yeah. So I had plenty of work, more than I really wanted, probably, or could even deal with. But at the time, I was dating a young lady who lived with a bunch of artists over in Covington, and one of her neighbors happened to be a preparator at the art museum, and he said that they were looking for an art handler, which is kind of your entry-level position to getting into doing exhibit work for the art museum there. So I thought, yes, I'll apply, and I was lucky enough to get that position. It was a part-time position. And about the same time, there was another uh, collections technician position very similar at the Taft Museum. So I worked both of those kind of the same time, part-time, Ended up just getting rid of my my private art handling business and started to concentrate on doing museum work. Did that for a number of years. Um, then I, I started getting into doing artwork and thought, hmm, I think I'd love to teach art. So the Art Academy had just started a Master of Arts in Art Education program about a year or two before I started there in 97, I think. And so I did that for a number of years. The The program was during the summer, so I was sort of working and doing that at the same time. So I sort of fell off the museum track for a little bit, did the schooling thing, came to the realization, I don't really want to teach. Why am I doing this? I kind of treated it at that point more like an MFA. And so I did a lot of painting, a lot of printmaking, really enjoyed that. But um, I had left the museum in order, because I had to take some other classes and my schedule was kind of filling up. And so I was looking for something else in the meantime. And I saw an ad in the Enquirer, I believe, for a stringed instrument repair technician position. And being a guitar player, and I'd always sort of like harbored this hobby of wanting to learn how to make guitars and things like that. I'm just fascinated by construction. So the fellow thought, well, you know, you've worked in museums, you can handle tools and everything, so I can train you. So I did that for four years up at the Baroque Violin Shop up in, um, I guess that's College Hill, Finneytown area there. And that was great. It was just like, it was like stepping back into this old world workshop, you know, and it, he had a huge rental program. And as you can imagine, kids aren't always really careful with their <laughs> instruments. Right. And we'd have cellos that had been under beds that had been jumped on and, you know, bases that had necks broken off and whatnot. So it was a lot of meatball surgery, but it was still fascinating. It was just kind of fun and rewarding and cut myself several times, I'm sure. But, you know, it was, it was good. So you're an artist. An artist from time to time. Mm -hmm. You're a musician. Yep. You have a level eye, which uh, let's well, not under undermine that. They're not as good as they used to be, but I, I hope they're still level. Yes, this is incredible. Uh, you've you've lived a hundred lives. I've 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 a, a few. Yeah. So let's see. I oh, and briefly in two thousand three, when the Contemporary Arts Center was being the new one mm -hmm. uh, after they moved when they were above Walgreens there, and they moved up the street to that new building. To the Zaha Hadid um, yeah, building. Yeah, yep, yeah. Yep. Um, someone had reached out to me and said they were looking for some help, and my boss at the violin shop was very accommodating. I said, Paul, I just need to take like three or four weeks, and I just kind of want to do this. And he said, sure, as long as you come back. So I did. So I worked on the inaugural exhibit at the CAC, got to see some old friends and realized, I kind of do miss the museum work. You know, I, I just, there's nothing like it. I, I just, a feeling of accomplishment and... About that time, my wife uh, was wanting to, she was looking into another job, and she ended up getting one out in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Wow. So I had pretty much grown up in Ohio all my life, and so we moved out to Albuquerque, and I felt like, oh, it is the land of enchantment out there. It's just, I just loved it out there. The smell of the chilies on the corner, the hatch chilies roasting, and the pinion wood in the fall, oh. People can't see right now, but you have, I feel like you have a very New Mexico look to you right now. Like it, <laughs> I wore my enchanting flannel shirt here. Yes, yes. It's painting the full experience. Yeah. Right? Oh, well, good, good. It's the visuals. So when I went out there, as it happened, um, the 
Albuquerque Museum, which is a civic, I guess, run. It's, it's run by the city of Albuquerque, and it's a history and art museum. And they were in the middle of doing a big expansion and renovation, and they were looking for someone to work in the collections department. I think it was also through a temp agency. That's just how they hired people with the city at that point. So I talked to them. He said, yeah, great. You've got great experience. Come aboard. Did that, became full-time, and then I was became the head preparator during this whole experience. And that first year, I spent deinstalling their sculpture garden, taking it over to our warehouse and various conservators. We worked with a lot of people up in Santa Fe and just helping out with the renovation and the planning for all of that. And then the new exhibits that went in to the to the gallery after we, we opened the museum then, um, or opened the expansion. And we had three uh, tricentennial exhibits for Albuquerque uh, marking, I guess, Spanish colonial right, presence yeah. in New Mexico. So that was just wonderful. Um, great experience, like I said, just a wonderful place to live, beautiful, uh, a whole lot of work. <laughs> we didn't have a huge crew and, you know, just, it was very interesting, especially reinstalling some of the sculpture and working with riggers and everything too. So that was just a different aspect. I hadn't really worked with large scale art like that before. So that was, that was interesting. And my wife decided to look for a different job. She had gotten tired of the one she was working in Albuquerque. So we moved to Northern California for two or three years up in Mendocino County, which people may be aware it's a very remote, rural part of California. It's right on the ocean up there, uh, about three hours north of San Francisco. Not many museums up there. So, but a lot of tourists, a lot of galleries and boutiques. Yeah. So I ended up working at a. Um, another art gallery and um, frame shop doing framing, essentially. But they also, they carried a lot of regional and local artists and everything. So you mentioned <clears throat> framing. Is it true that you were the one who framed Roger Rabbit? <laughs> I did not. Okay. I did not, yeah. I, I'm, trying, I'm trying to rethink the visuals in that in that film. And, I, and yeah, I don't I, remember seeing you. I that, didn't but... frame them. I didn't hang them on a wall or anything. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. a shame. <laughs> So then an opportunity came to move once again. <laughs> I did a lot of moving in those years. Um, you were prepared to handle art. Did that, did that prepare you at all to move furniture as well? <laughs> uh, I did a lot of packing, yes. I'm very good at packing and unpacking and making accommodating space, yes. Yes, I this can is, probably do chesters pretty well. Yeah. This is why you gravitate towards the crates so much. I think so, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I totally relate to packing and unpacking, right. Uh, so moved across the country then to Boston and just looking for anything at the time, uh, I ended up working for the U S art company, which is a shipper that we work with quite a bit here. And I was making crates essentially in their crate shop and also doing installation for that for a couple of months. But a position came available at the Worcester art museum, which is about 60 miles West of Boston, uh, it was a grant project. They needed someone to basically do the cataloging and inventory of their print collection. It's a very fine print collection. Uh, a lot of old master prints, uh, really strong in Japanese prints. And just given my interest and background in printmaking and art history, it just it seemed wonderful. So I did that for two or three years until that grant was finished, essentially and completed that project. And then another grant opportunity came up for an IMLS grant uh, to digitize our paintings collection. So I managed that for two or three years, and we photographed about 900 paintings, wow. working through gallery by gallery. Basically, we would do two days. I would take apart the paintings. We'd have these tables set up. We'd close the gallery off, of course. We had lights set up in there. And then we do the photography of the pieces. I'd put them back. And then by that Wednesday or something, the gallery would be back open. Then I'd go back to my office and I'd put in metadata, compile all that information so we could really build up our digital presence online of what the collection is. And it's an outstanding collection there. They have a, a real specialty, I suppose, in Northern European painting, which is really something I love. Uh, but a lot of interesting contemporary art exhibits, too, that we did there. And interestingly enough, just to show you what the small world of museums are, the lead preparator at the Cincinnati Art Museum when I was working there, a fellow named Patrick Brown, 
He had moved up to Massachusetts some years before by way of Long Island, I think. And I got that job at Worcester, and Patrick was working there at the Worcester Art Museum no as a preparator. And what was even weirder is both the Worcester Art Museum and, and Cam are about the same age. It was sort of the golden era of museums, um, late you know 1880s, 1890s in the United States. And so the building seemed the same. Collections, of course, kind of they all have a similar smell. I'll just say that. Aggregate odors of, of museum yeah. collections. Um, and I'd be walking around down there and Patrick could be passing by. And it was like this time warp. It's like, am I in Cincinnati? Am I in Mass? I don't. Yeah. It's just, it's crazy how, how that works. Just, you never know who you'll bump into again. So, so did that for several years. Um, I think I worked there about 10 years um, wow. doing a commute from Boston to Worcester every day, and that was 60 miles each way. That was a lot of driving. So, No kidding. Worcester is, um, it's not spelled like Ohio's Worcester. No, so it's Wor- right? Worcester. Yeah. Yeah. Worcester, as they say up there. It's Worcester. Did you, in, in your yeah. 10 years, did you develop a Boston accent at all? No. No? No. <laughs> and there's many Boston accents I learned, yes. There's, there's like North, there's more suburban, there's people down in the Cape and down by Providence and everything, but... Beautiful area, a great town for museums, of course, the Boston MFA and the Isabella Stewart Gardner. And I think I also ended up doing some, oh, well, while I was doing that, I got a graduate certificate program at Tufts in museum studies. Wow. Um, just just kind of go over and learned a little bit more about more of the uh, nuts and bolts of, of registrarial work, although I was doing that at Worcester, too. And they had an interesting internship program. So I did an internship for the Trustees of Reservations in Massachusetts, which is a really big land trust organization. In fact, they're the earliest land trust organization in the world, and they were the inspiration for the National Trust in England. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I worked at their collections and research center, which is in this rural area south of Boston, in this basically a a nature preserve. It was among. It was an old uh, tuberculosis sanitarium. (laughs) That had been converted into a collections facility. Sure. So, so that was that was interesting experience. They had a lot of properties all around, some you know big mansions to Nathaniel Hawthorne's home in Concord, and just land conservancy areas around Massachusetts too. So that was very interesting doing that work. Um, ended up separating from my wife. We got a divorce and. I saw the opportunity to come to Cincinnati because they needed a registrar. To come back home. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought I'd take a chance, and lo and behold, they wanted me here. So, For those keeping score at home, you've worked at five of the major museums in Cincinnati, at least. So you hear Cincinnati Museum Center, Mm -hmm. Cincinnati Art Museum, Mm -hmm. Taft Museum of Art, Mm -hmm. Contemporary Art Center. Mm Mm-hmm. You've done work with the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center yes. as well. Mm-hmm. A- am I missing any? Have you done anything uh, with the Sign Museum, Beringer Crawford? Uh, I haven't. I worked one weekend up at the Dayton Museum. Okay. They were doing a big Baroque paintings exhibit. We, I remember uncreating these massive, massive, like, biblical, mythological scenes, like 10 by 12 foot painting, and we had to carry it up. We had to uncreate it outside in front of the museum and actually take it up their sort of big steps into the museum because it was just too darn big. I think that makes mine and Mitch's hearts so happy. What a photo op. <laughs> it was a sunny day, fortunately. Did, so was, when when you opened the crate, did you say, yeah. oh, no, they're all Baroque? Uh, no, fortunately, they were in good shape. But, okay. Yeah, I, yeah. You can't pass up a good Baroque joke. Uh, uh, yes. But, yeah. So your experience, it's... I don't feel like if anyone's doing the math, you have a long enough lifeline to have done all of this. Mm-hmm. But it's a combination uh, in registrarial, registrarial, mm-hmm. yep, um, or stracial. Great, <laughs> Mitch. Can you can you edit that to come out of my mouth? <laughs> um, it's a combination of kind of technical work, the the metadata. Yep. Um, but also very hands-on, very tactile work. Yes. Is yeah. that, would you say that's like a 50-50 split or? Mm, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Um, like I said, I'm a generalist in that I just, I'm always thinking of, I'm, I'm an advocate for the collection of the object. And when we're borrowing an object, say a Raphael painting from the Louvre or something, you know, I have to be the advocate for the, for the lender. 
and I'm their eyes and ears, and I have to keep an eye on climate, lighting, possible risk factors with visitors. You know, I'm probably one of those suspicious people for security guards because when I go into a museum, I start looking up in the ceilings, Mm -hmm. at cameras, at vents and lights. I look behind paintings to see how things are installed. So people think I'm always casing the joint when I'm at a museum, but that's just my world. It becomes this intuitive thing. You just sort of live that way. When we form our Ocean's Eleven team, you're on it. Oh. <laughs> I, I think we need we need Matt on the team because yeah. you know what to look for. Yeah, yeah. Is there um, a particular aspect that you prefer most in mm. in your role? I, I would say just, you know, experiencing these objects. I do get to touch them and handle them, of course. Seeing these new exhibits come to light, it's just so wonderful. Um, and I know it sounds corny, but I think one of my favorite things about working in museums is working with museum people because I think they are a special breed. And like I say, we're all very curious, but they tend to be creative, funny, pretty well-traveled people, you know. So it's it just – I just love the esprit de corps of, of exhibit production, I suppose. What's the strangest object you've ever handled? And what's mm. the what would you say is your favorite object you've ever you've ever handled? I was afraid of these questions because boy, there's some weird stuff and probably the weirdest have been here. Really? Yeah, because I mean, you know, I, I like I say I mainly worked in art museums, um, although we did have some history objects out in Albuquerque. Um, but coming here, I mean we've got fossils. We've got a bug barn. Of course, that's not part of the collection. Um, I think one of the weirdest things has to be when we brought in um, Hudo, the Komodo dragon from the zoo. It's not every day you get a dragon carcass. All right. So let's, let me dwell on that a little bit. How does it, how is it delivered? Is it in a he was uh, in a like death in a pose in a bag. Box. He was in a bag. Okay. He was kind of curled up, and uh, Heather, our zoologist, she was concerned that, you know, when the zoo does, when their animals die, they tend to, like, do a necropsy on them because they want to find out, you know, if there was some disease or just for researchers later on. Um, but fortunately, Hudo was actually fairly intact. And for some reason, his left or right back paw was, like, dyed blue. And I don't know what that means. Maybe they just so they they note that he is actually dead or something. I don't know. Yeah, um, but yeah, he was just all curled up, and you know, I thought it was going to be this huge, heavy, big thing, but he was actually fairly compact when he's really? in that little that little pose. But he was kind of kind of adorable in his own way. So yeah. when that comes in, are you filling out a? A U-Haul form, you know how when you rent a U-Haul, <laughs> there, and you've—it sounds like you've rented yeah. quite a few, and you're like, oh yes, that yeah. you're marking. There's okay, well, there's trucks. a scratch up here, and then you're yeah. marking it. Do you have to um, detail the condition it comes mm, in? Not on Hudo per se, and he's still frozen. I think we have to wait until the our beetles get hungry next summer, um, and Heather's going to have to break them up into little bits. He's he's more than one meal. It's think, the, so. the beetles. Mm-hmm. This these are domestic beetles mm-hmm. um, that we use to clean flesh off a bone. Correct, essentially, mm-hmm. because we we don't want to uh, we don't keep beef jerky in, in right. the collections. Right. We uh, we keep the the hide or the the skin in in the bones. Essentially, I think so. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I think I feel like Heather mentioned that the beetles will have a lot of work cut out for them. Because lizard skin is fairly thick, and mm-hmm. some some things they just don't don't deal with as well. So that'll be a that'll be a process. But yeah, wow. Okay, <laughs> so that's that's very strange. Yeah, I'll give yeah. it to you on that one. Um, our hearse that we recently received into the collection is a Cincinnati-made Sayers and Scoville horse-drawn hearse with glass sides and everything. You've probably seen those kinds of things in in movies. You know, sort of Victorian era. You can just totally picture the guys with the big, you know, dour looking with the big top hats and all in black and everything. Trotting along. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, this this hearse had been in Philadelphia. Um, I think it was at the Museum of Funerary Art or something like that. If I can remember, I think they're a museum that is now defunct. 
And the College of Physicians in Philadelphia took the hearse in hopes that they could use it for their programming or something, uh, which they never did. It was just in storage. So they contacted us sort of out of the blue and said, well, you know, this is made in Cincinnati. Would you be interested in it? And we said, absolutely. So because we have another buggy by Sayers and Scoville, which happens to be a doctor's buggy. So now we have the doctor's buggy and we have a hearse. So. The, yeah, the do- they pass the each other. Cycle the doctor of life. says, "That's right. did all I could." <laughs> That's right. <laughs> your now. turn now. That's right. We need a different wagon here. So, yeah. What's been <clears> your favorite <throat> object that you've been that you've been fortunate enough to handle? Ooh, anywhere, anywhere, yeah, anywhere, anywhere. Hmm. So many wonderful Albrecht Durer prints at the art museum. Um, we did borrow Raphael, uh, Virgin and Child painting from the Louvre which was just amazing. Uh, We brought that there to compare because we had another painting in the collection at Worcester that we suspected was by Raphael. And so it was sort of brought us a contrast to compare. It was also sort of a a conservation research project too. We had a wonderful uh, art conservation team in Worcester. Um, And I think besides exhibits, people, conservators are also my favorites because they're just these, they're like monk-like up in their own little lair up there and they're working very, you walk in there and they're all very quiet. They've got their earbuds or something on and they're doing in painting with these tiny little brushes onto a still life. And it's just. The what? tedium of it, the the attention to detail is. Meditative. Incredible. Meditative. That's a very good. Yes. Yeah. 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 So you can, you can tell by my response that it, that's not something I'm cut out for, but it is wildly fascinating mm, mm-hmm. um, to see because it, as we were going through the restoration of Union Terminal, mm-hmm. Union Terminal has a lot of artwork right. in it and some of it in really great condition. Some of it was in a, a little rough condition just because of the age of the building. and it Lived in. Yeah. The, uh, lived in. The reasons that we were going through the restoration mm-hmm. uh, impacted some of the artwork, but watching the, the conservators and, and the, the, the people doing some of the, the repairs on them, it's entrancing to watch just yeah. like, watch them do the work with these teeny little yeah. q-tips they're, and they're magnifying lenses yeah and, yep yeah it's very cool they're not quite as fast as exhibits people they do not hurry you know conservators are very methodical and you know it just comes with the job that's that's their aspect but you know exhibits people have to get something done and you get a timeline so I, you know. Exhibits people are the the epitome of what's the shortest runway you can take off in. Yeah. Sometimes it's a helipad. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I mean, exhibit install is the definition of, of moving mountains, of, of performing miracles. And I so much respect for everyone who's involved, mm-hmm. uh, whether that's a permanent exhibit or a, a temporary exhibit, a traveling exhibition that comes in. Mm-hmm. The, the work that goes in is incredible. And... The, the problem solving. So figuring yeah. out because things aren't hung the same way in every single museum. The right. walls aren't the same material and, and figuring out that out on the fly or, or developing a solution because saying, oh, well, we can't figure out how to put this one in there. So we we're just, just not up. going to. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. That's never the answer. It's it's how do we do this? Yeah. So that's it's wonderful. Now let's talk about Matt, the artist, because oh, okay. I'm, I'm sort of saving the musician for. All right. Right. For afterwards, but artists, where does that come from? Have you always enjoyed art? Have you always been interested in that growing yeah. up? Yeah, um, high school, I did a lot of photography. Uh-huh. Um, again, we were very fortunate to have a nice big dark room at Sycamore High School, so I spent a good number of my years in the dark room. I just really enjoy it, I, I like observing, so I think that probably was a good thing for helping train my eye and learning about composition. I had also hopes of maybe going into doing filmmaking at one point and dabbled with that. My dad's old eight millimeter camera, me and friends would like make these crazy movies. And I just love the whole process from shooting to planning out a scene to doing the editing. I loved editing, you know, in another life, I'd probably be a film editor because I just love putting a story together. You know, how you just make something out of all this excess role, you know, that you have to just make something that's consistent and, and can present a story so yeah i'm just so fascinated by the, the how broad your skill set is it's mm. it's so incredible and then from an art perspective from an as an artist what mm-hmm. you paint you draw you sculpt i've a little done bit a little of everything. of everything yeah uh i'd say I, i've 
most of my work has been printmaking, lithography, and sort of woodcut. Um, I've not done too much of that in recent years, but, you know, I come to time to time. I just go to a different medium or something. I've done some stone sculpture. Um, I've done some foundry work, which I just love. I took a foundry class up at uh, UC one winter, which is a great time to take a foundry class, by the way, because if you're around hot metal, you don't want to be in, you know, in Ohio and, you know, pouring hot steel (laughs) in the summer. So, so yeah, a little of everything. What is foundry art? What do you, what are you, You you're just melting? You're casting sculptures. So you make uh, the lost wax process where you make a model, you actually make something out of wax and then you put it in a uh, investment, it's called, which is a kind of a silicate plaster mix, and you place that wax model within this set investment, put that in a kiln that melts all the wax and creates a void, and then you heat up your bronze or aluminum or whatever it is, and then you pour it into this mold, and that displaces where the wax was, so you have a negative of the positive, or a positive of the positive, yeah. And you bust it apart, and you clean it up. I imagine this takes place um, in a similar setting to um, kind of the the climax of Terminator Two. Exactly. It, yeah. Is that pretty accurate? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Or like Thunderdome. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. <laughs> All right. Matt, Matt's, Matt's <laughs> spent time in Thunderdome. He spent time as a Terminator. Uh, and in the Hall of Justice. And the Hall of Justice. I mean, you you're all over the IP. That's right. How about how about the musician? guitar player right guitar player sometimes warbling singing harmonizer yeah that that goes way back to uh i don't know i've been playing since seventh grade started playing in bands you know early high school fell in with a particularly interesting group of people in high school sort of the music geek people um and so i was just convinced well this is the world for me. I just, you know, want to be a rock and roller. So I didn't even have plans to go to college after high school. I said, I'm just going to do music, you know, because of course anybody can be successful as a musician, right? Right. Uh, so I waited a couple of years even before I went back to, back to school. Um, just sort of, you know, the initial apartment and practicing and disillusionment and, uh, did that a couple of times moving back and forth. But once I came back here to, uh, go to school at UC, Pretty much the same group of people that I played with in high school and a couple other people. Um, we started playing pretty regularly. We'd practice every week. We had a gig almost every weekend. Really? And we played all around Clifton. You know, Bogarts and the old Sudsy Malone's Laundromat. I think we were one of the first bands to play there. We were the last, one of the last bands to play on the last night at the Notorious Jockey Club down in Newport. So that was always an interesting experience. But yeah. What it, kind of music did great. you play? It was kind of a, uh, I'd say... Punkish uh, garage rock with a lot of uh, instrumental surf music put in there. We did a lot of that. Did this have been 90s? Uh, 80s. 80s? Yeah, mid 80s to mid 90s. Can you tell, can you say your band name? Oh, yeah. Back then, uh, Doc and the Pods we played. Um, (laughs) Our our drummer was nicknamed uh, Dr. Mendel for whatever reason, I'm not sure. so he was Doc. So we thought, well, yeah, Doc in the pods, because Dr. Gregor Mendel, as we all know, is the father of modern genetics and experimenting on peapods. Yeah. yeah. So Doc in the pods. It was a natural, you know, kind of hokey, but we didn't take ourselves too seriously. And I think that's what was part of our um, appeal. We just had a, a fun time and I was more entertained by my bandmates probably than, you know, trying to entertain people because it just it was, it was quite a, a laugh and a kick. And we got to open for some interesting people. And I actually got a compliment from Joan Jett while she was in her bathrobe. Really? Yes. <laughs> Not everyone can say that, but... We need to get a... you and Venomous Valdez together to create some <laughs> stories. Oh, well, there's some stories I probably shouldn't repeat back <laughs> about that. Do you, but, do you yeah. still play a guitar? <clears throat> I do, yep. Not as much and more acoustic these days. I get tired of carrying amps. I live on the third floor of an apartment. I don't like moving equipment so much these days, and... The volume, you know. I'm pretty sure we, we've discussed this before. We could probably put together a museum battle of bands. Like, oh, not just one band, but I bands. think we could cobble multiple together here, right? Like you said, those museum freaks, there's a lot of artists and musicians and, yeah. Because Chris Novi, yeah. is, is he a drummer? Yes. Okay. And a banjo player, too. <laughs> yep. 
Oh, mind blowing! Yeah, yeah, I this is this is always such a humbling experience for me because everyone's so <laughs> incredibly talented, and I'm just like I don't have anything to offer. You gotta do something when you're not working, right? But yeah. So you got to work on the the guitar exhibit when we brought oh, that in yes. here too, right? I How was exciting especially was that? Oh, very much. I am a huge guitar. I don't know what you call it, buff. I suppose. Oh yeah. I've I had the books. I would just spend hours listening on my brother's stereo and just going through guitar books and guitar magazines. And I could name every model and the hardware that was on it. And I love going to vintage guitar shops. And Did you have a favorite guitar in that exhibition? So oh, this was wow. probably um, yeah, it was early, pre-COVID. early 2018 or, or spring yeah. of 2018. Yeah. Wow. Um, I got to say probably the guitars that Mike of Mike's guitars in Cincinnati, he lent several... Um, 1950s Les Pauls, Gibson Les Pauls, which is, you know, they're sort of the iconic electric guitar, but the fact that he had these beautiful models and they kind of represented the uh, development of that model during those 10 years, I just thought, wow, all in one place. And he let me touch them and play them, which was, that was the icing. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Register perks, right? Yeah, well, you know, I, I try not to crow about it. Well, let me let me check the condition of the strings real uh, quick. Uh, 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 Got to make sure this is okay and can hold a tune or whatever. But yeah, no, that was that was wonderful. That was great. Can you identify a favorite exhibit that you worked on here, whether that's mm. um, a permanent exhibit here at the museum or a temporary exhibition that we brought in? I really enjoyed working on the Made in Cincinnati exhibit. Um, just cause we have just a lot of interesting things and Cincinnati is such a really cool town for things that have been made here. You know? A lot of weird stuff in that. Oh, guy. Yeah. And I think, yeah. I don't think it's, uh, it's a dirty word to, to call things weird. There's some strange stuff in there. Sure. That makes it very cool. Yeah. And There's like that. why, why a bank safe so fancy and painted? So you know, intricate. Why would you have that? Yeah. It's so know. beautiful. It's. It, so that bank safe, mm-hmm. it's opened um, yeah. in a way because it is all of that really this Mosler safe, all this really beautiful artwork mm-hmm. that seems overkill, seems unnecessary. It's right. like um, decorating the inside of a refrigerator door. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe so you, you should so you do put that. your ketchup yeah. bottles in front of it. Yeah. But um, what's the conversation like? Hey, we want to. How do we display this? How? what's your participation in that and figuring out what's the best way to showcase some of these objects? Well, yeah, obviously when um, our exhibit developing people were, were seeing this, you know, and we wanted a great example and this just kind of fell into our laps too. It's, I think about a year or two before we were planning the Maiden Cincinnati exhibit, but uh, the family that it came from is a woman who lives out in uh, Mainville or out by Morrow and her father had run a savings and loan or bought a, savings and loan, I think it was up in Clifton and this safe just came with the building. Um, so she had it in her garage, but then she reached out and says, you know, we've got this big safe. We'd like our garage back. And do you think you'd be interested? And I was like, Oh my God, yes, we would. And especially when she sent me the pictures, I was like, this is an amazing example. So I just love when things just kind of fall into your lap like that. When you, That's... when you get that call, when you get that <laughs> message or, mm-hmm. Do you then go out and take a look at? I mean, they, yeah, they whenever possible. Are... Yeah, or photos, mm-hmm, depending where they are. But what's mm-hmm. the conversation like when you say no? Oh, if you see something and you're like, well, yeah, no. and you you hate to you hate to be the the Debbie Downer for these people, but it's if it's not really relevant to our mission. I mean, we really try to focus on things made here in Cincinnati or having some historical relevance. So you know, if it just doesn't fit, I think a lot of people understand, and a lot of people just they want to see it go to a good home and unfortunately we just can't take everything so we have to be a, a more judicious about what we do take so it has to have a good story and that's the main thing and it's not always about uh pieces to exhibit also mm-hmm. it, just because you you donate something or um you you give something to the collections doesn't mean it's going to go on display right anytime right. soon or sometimes at all it's right. it's also about preserving that for research for for education for further study right exactly and i think that gets lost on a lot of people um because i i get calls fairly regularly from someone oh my family donated you know this uniform or something 10 or 15 years ago and we were wondering if it's on display or you know, I have to explain, well, it's, you know, it's part of the collection and we may, we just don't know. I mean, it, it depends if there's a programming need for it, but like you say, it's, it's more about preserving history and it's for the research aspect. 
if it's a good fit that way. But sometimes when people are giving these things to us, they are expecting us to put it on view right away. It's like, well, let me know when it goes on view. And it's like, well, you know, it, it probably won't or not the foreseeable future. And we get wonderful things. I wish we could put all these things on on yeah. view, but it's, you know, we know it's a lot of work to even just switch out things in the exhibit, let alone. And the other reality is the <clears throat> museum has been collecting for almost 200 years, since, right. since 1831. So right. that's, a, that's a lot of objects. Mm-hmm. You have to find a place to put those in. It's not like your garage where if it fits, it it can go in. Right. You're, you're cramming it in. It's finding a way to, to carefully store these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is being a little judicious about what we're taking in. But also when you're collecting for almost 200 years, the chance that you you already have something or something's duplicate and mm-hmm. you know this is great but we have a better better example of that one that's in better condition or, or something like that so it is um you know we're, we're not just cincinnati's attic so to speak right right we're trying to have the best examples we can you know something that has a story so if we had this amazing wedding dress but we don't know anything about it and then we'd get another wedding dress, and it was worn by so-and-so's mother, and it was also worn by her daughter, and they lived in this neighborhood or in this house. That's something, you yeah. know, when you have a story connected to it. So, I mean, that's what's the amazing thing is about these collections. We come and go. You know, we won't be here forever. We weren't here at the beginning. These works, you know, they're the real residents here and in, in, in our collection. I mean, they, ideally, we will care for them in perpetuity, but... You know, when you get an object in, it's not just the object. You're talking shelf space, climate control for it, the files, photo documentation. So it's it's a whole thing, you know, when we adopt an item. We have to provide it with a good home. And as time goes on, the uh, fr- from a personal perspective, it feels mm-hmm. like the collections get younger because there's mm-hmm. a, a PlayStation in the collections mm-hmm. that I remember getting for Christmas one year. Uh-huh. It's not that exact one, but I'm like, oh, oh yeah. I remember that. Yeah. And yeah. What is it doing in here? This should not be in the history collection. It must be old. Did you put this in the wrong place? <laughs> and it's you know just right. down down the shelf. There's a a typewriter from the 1800s. Yeah. And it, yeah. It's the stories are um, they're they're continuing to be written, mm-hmm. and so the yes the collections items get a little younger with air quotes uh-huh. you know because they're from your childhood but you're <laughs> you're growing up and there is going to be a generation and that's going to tell a, a story for them of a moment in time yeah yeah i mean it's a reflection of the city you know it's it's not exactly encased in amber but you know it's this is cincinnati you know i mean i i, I would love to envision someone a thousand years from now coming across this pile of things, hopefully building standing, you never know. And just why did they collect these things? And why are these all here together? Why do they have 20 typewriters? But, you know, what? Typewriters. The typewriters <laughs> is... Uh... And sewing machines. Yeah. 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 Are you ever amazed when you see something in the collections or, or you stumble across something or you're reintroduced to something, you rediscover mm-hmm. something and you're like... I didn't know we had this in the collection. Oh, this is all the time. So yeah. strange. I, I come across another painting I haven't seen. You know, we were looking for something else uh, this morning, Catherine, our curator, and I. And I saw this painting I'd never seen before, like Fountain Square. I was like, oh, this is wonderful. But, you know, you just can't see it all. So that's part of it. It's always a new discovery here for me, too. We have on display right now, as part of uh, kind of Toys Through Time, a Knight Rider toy uh, from yes. the 80s. Mm-hmm. and. Among those toys, we had staff loan some of them for for the duration. Mm-hmm. Um, so not in our collections, but on loan to us. Which, mm-hmm. if if someone comes in and say, "Hey, I'm going to loan these priceless, very expensive Beanie Babies mm-hmm. for this exhibit," it goes through you, right? Yeah, yeah. They but, loan for them and just make sure that you know we can get it back to them. The main thing is we just want to get it back to them. Right. You know, and right. they fall off the place, you know, the planet. We need to figure out where they go. But there's also a Knight Rider car, and I'm like, oh, cool. I wonder who loaned that. Nope, comes from our collections. Yep, yep. <laughs> like, that got, is so cool. That's what's great, too, about, you know, we have Kenner here in Cincinnati, so it's just a wonderful source for things and kids' memories. And, of course, the Etch-A-Sketch, which is from Ohio Art up in the northwest corner of Ohio in Bryan, Ohio. Yeah. But it is fun for 
you know, 80s, 90s babies to with Kenner to relive their childhood because oh, like, yeah. that is that's kind of this sweet spot. And we have an excuse to collect it. That's you know, right. As as they're getting phone call from their phone calls from their parents. I'm cleaning out the attic and I'm getting rid of this unless you come and get it. We're like, we have some in our collection. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Come relive your childhood. There are things we want. We're still looking for a good cozy coop. So, oh, that's right. We just kind of keep reiterating the APB for a cozy coop for the collection. Because Kurt, if if you have a cozy coop and you're looking to offload it, email us at meanwhile at cincymuseum.org and we'll get it to Matt. We'll yep. make sure he gets it and that's that gets right. it in the collections. And it has to have a story. You know who who wrote it. You know who who played with it. Yeah, help so, us. Share, so share your story. Coop. We'll take it. I drive by sometimes and I see a cozy coop kind of near the edge of a property, and I'm really tempted to just like grab it and throw it in the car because obviously they don't care if they're just going to leave it out in their yard like that. But <laughs> I try to restrain myself. I try not to shoplift from people. That's so. probably for the best. Yeah. The last question I always have to ask if you could trade roles with anyone in the museum for a day, who hmm. who would you trade roles with? Wow, if I had the skills, probably Dave Might or Erica Schultz. Dave Might, we hear Dave Might all the time. Erica's a genius. Is, he is a genius, and Erica is wildly talented. Very and, talented. And just it, both of them in such tactile ways that mm-hmm. it, it's not just the way the mind works, but then that they can get their hands to do these things. Yeah, incredible. Yeah. I have a lot of respect for mount makers, and again, in another life, I'd probably would have gone into museum mount making because i just you know you get a a new challenge every week and just trying to make something that will hold this little roman medallion or something in the best light just wonderful i mean that's art in itself so that's one of the fun things about working in a museum is the longer you're here the longer in a museum Mm -hmm. you gain more appreciation for for simple things like mounts we we opened the ancient world's hiding in plain Mm -hmm. sight gallery and as I'm walking through, I'm looking, and I find myself looking at the mounts. How do we mount these fossils? Right. And someone has to figure that out uh, that you, you don't even think about. When you visit a museum, you're not looking at those things. You're looking at the, the objects and, mm-hmm. and the artifacts, uh, and you're just kind of breezing through. But if you stop and you look and you just think about how did this get here? Why right. is it positioned and, and looks like this? Is the lighting on this intentional or is that just what the gallery looks like? And mm-hmm. thinking through all those things is really incredible. And that's the kind of thing that I look for when I go to museums. I'm just like, ooh, I bet that was a challenge. Or yeah. And you're talking to these big rocks, you know, some of these things, 40, 50, 60 pounds, making something that's safe, going to carry it and look good. Yeah. You know, it is art. Wow. That's incredible. Matt, this has been fascinating. I, I really appreciate oh, it. I enjoyed it too. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Uh, and, and thank you all for listening to Meanwhile at the Museum. Remember, if you liked what you heard, please rate and subscribe. But more importantly, come see for yourself. Visit cincymuseum.org to see the latest reasons to visit. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to tell us how much you love the show, send us an email at meanwhile at cincymuseum.org. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.